Welcome to the 251st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with horror writer Nicole Cushing, author of the books Mr. Suicide, The Mirrors, and others. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Nicole Cushing, author of The Sadist Bible, The Mirrors, and other works of horror fiction. Cushing's novel, Mr. Suicide, was awarded the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Great. Can you read two or three pages from your new novel, The Sadist Bible? Sure. Um, yeah, it's uh, well, it's a novella. Novella. It's, yeah, it's uh, a longish novella, around uh, thirty thousand words or so. But yeah, this is the uh, the beginning of the Sadist Bible. Uh, the first chapter of this is called the Covenant. Do you really think you're ready to die? I don't want you chickening out on me. Ellie thought about Lori's question, stared at it in the chat window rubbed her eyes, yawned. It was late. She should start packing, but she had to see this through. It was simply too important a conversation to cut short. The click-clack of keys on her ancient laptop sounded like grinding teeth as they churned out her reply. There's nothing here for me, so why not? I mean, I'm damned anyway. I think it will be awesome. Dying is the most intimate thing two people can do together. Ellie paused. Let that sink in. Lori had a way with words. She was younger, but seemed so smart. Could have made it into college, but hadn't even applied. Should have gone into advertising. She could make even the most outrageous thought sound believable. Was she right? Was dying the most intimate act two people could share? Ellie wasn't sure. She started typing. But before we die, there will be, well, you know. I will ravish you before. We will suck things and lick things and poke things and probe things. Just thinking about it once makes me want to jill off. You won't die a virgin. I'm not a virgin. I'm almost old enough to be your mother. She hint the enter key and thought about what she was going to say next. Something pithy and sexy and... Lori's next message plopped into the window, interrupting her train of thought. We're only 13 years apart. That's not old enough to be my mom. But maybe it is out where you live. Anyway, I know you're not a virgin. You've had cock, but not pussy. You're a girlgen. Very well. You won't die a girlgen. Ellie's eyes focused on a single word. Die. Her heart pounded. The muscles in her arms stiffened. She took a deep breath, absorbing the finality of it. How could Lori chat about it so casually? They talked about this for weeks. Now she was getting ready to make it real. To pack to leave, to never come back. 
and that's the first page or so of the Sadist Bible. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about the Sadist Bible yet, how would you describe the novella? Uh, I would describe it as one, like a very simplistic uh, kind of quick elevator pitch sort of marketing thing would be calling it Lesbian Hellraiser, Uh, you know, in in the sense that some people have likened the work to Clive Barker and there is uh, this um, romance of sorts between these two women that's at the the core of it. So like uh, Barker has said about his novella, The Hellbound Heart, uh, this is, uh, he called it a very twisted love story. And I think you could say that here too. It's, it's a story about basically two um, very um, wounded, broken people, one of whom is a closeted lesbian in her late 30s who's living in the Bible Belt, and the other one is a gal in her early 20s who's bisexual, also more or less in the Bible Belt, and uh, both of them suicidal, both of them deciding to meet online and going to a place where uh, that caters to people who want to form a, a suicide pact on a social networking site. And that's where they start to chat. And, uh, and it's basically about their plan for uh, meeting in a hotel about halfway in between their houses. And all the, the strange things that happen en route to that meeting – uh, and their encounter with a truly wicked cosmic force uh, along the way. And, and uh, the fact that Ellie is, um, is in love with Lori, but Lori's not telling Ellie everything about what's going on uh, between, with her, basically. Uh, she's not divulging everything that's happening in her life, including her entanglements with this wicked cosmic force. Um, so, yeah, that, that's... a how I would describe it uh, in a little bit more detail. Gotcha. So do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing the Sadist Bible? Yeah, I, I do. It was, um, oddly enough, I was uh, in New Orleans at the World Horror Convention a couple of years ago, and I was up on the rooftop of this hotel, and... Every once in a while, I have these things happen to me that I can't really explain. They're kind of like daydreams, but they're much more vivid than daydreams. They're kind of like hallucinations, but they're not quite hallucinations because uh, I know they're not real. But I had this this vision of this uh, strange cosmic realm, uh, and this doesn't happen to me very often. It probably happens to me maybe about two or three times a year, usually when I'm resting, uh, where I'll have these, you know, kind of strange visions, for lack of a better word, and that this, uh, it was a quite disturbing vision. It was uh, a vision of uh, of you know, mutilated angels and uh, and this sort of thing, pretty odd stuff. Uh, and um, admittedly, although in my mind, it's you know, it's kind of par for the course, and. Uh, and so I, I had that, and that was a powerful image. And it wasn't the the complete story, obviously, because with dreams and nightmares and images, they don't have the narrative structure necessary uh, to support a whole length of a story. But it was a good starting point, and that's from there. I, I always kind of work backwards and kind of reverse engineer the story from there, and kind of say what kind of characters and what kind of plot would lead us to a place like this. Uh, such as the one I had in my uh, vision. And uh, and so that's how the Sadist Bible came about. 
And so Mr. Suicide, as I mentioned earlier, won the Bram Stoker Award for first novel. What was your writing journey before getting Mr. Suicide published? Oh, I was writing a lot of short fiction for a number of years. I My writing journey has been uh, very sporadic up until about 2008. I, I graduated college in 1995, uh, and in 95 and 96, I tried my little heart out to be a writer, but I just didn't have the work ethic and the stability in my life to be able to do that. So I was, you know, sending stories to Ann Vandermeer back when she was Ann Kennedy and uh, uh, editing a magazine called The Silver Web and getting well-earned rejections, <laughs> uh, well-earned form rejections uh, from from that magazine and, and, and others. And I just kind of ran out of steam. And then I tried again around the year 2000 to 2003, and I, I even joined a writer's group. But uh, in spite of joining a writer's group, most of what I did was party with them. And I didn't, you know, I didn't even like get critiques from this writer's group. And I, I, even looking back, and I, even I don't understand that one, how that could have worked. Um, and then it was really not until 2008 after I had a bit more maturity, a bit more of a work ethic, and a bit more stability in my life that I, I started um, going to conventions, taking classes at conventions. There used to be a convention in Columbus, Ohio called Context that offered uh, workshops, uh, and I took a lot of those. And I just kept writing every day, and uh, mostly short fiction, or actually exclusively short fiction back in those days. And gradually things got longer and longer, and I remember being so proud when I broke through and, and accidentally wrote my first novella. Uh, I was trying to write a short story and it just got longer and longer and longer and longer until it became a novella. And after that, things got, you know, I was able to, to sustain a, a greater length of, of, of story. And it just kind of happened on its own, um, which is good. I did try at one point to write a novel. I actually tried to write a science fiction novel uh, back in around 2010 and uh, I tried to write something that was, you know, really big, and I had this idea that this was going to get me an agent, and, and you know, it was really kind of trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And so that was some wasted time, because uh, it was big, and it was bloated, and it was ugly, and it was awful. Uh, and then I decided to really focus on the kind of fiction that I love the most, which is uh, dark, psychological, emotionally realistic horror fiction uh, that... For me, my approach to horror is basically embracing um, tragedy, not embracing it in the sense of saying, you know, this is a good thing. Obviously, it's not. But in terms of storytelling, embracing the storytelling of tragedy. Uh, and for me, horror is tragedy plus unreality. Uh, and, uh, and that's what my approach is. And so I've, I've developed more confidence over time. Um, it helped that in, like, in 2013, I was nominated for a Shirley Jackson Award for a novella. Didn't win, but but I was nominated. And so that helped uh, me feel more confident. And really, confidence has been so important to me in my writing journey. Um, I didn't have it all early on because I had these other previous attempts at writing that kind of went kerplunk and crashed and burned. And so for me getting confidence over time is what has allowed me to be myself as a writer. And uh, it's, I don't think we talk about it enough as something that's important to writers. So for me, it's just been essential. And how do you think you gain that just by continuing to write? Uh, continuing to write. That was helpful. Um, and some of it was simply uh, 
when good things happen. When when a writer I respected gave me a blurb. I went, uh, Children of No One was the novella that was nominated for the Shirley Jackson Award, and it was also blurbed by Thomas Ligotti, who uh, is known in literary horror circles. Actually, now he's one of the uh, few living writers to be published uh, by Penguin Classics. Uh, now, that just happened in the last year. So, uh, so he's become much more widely known, uh, kind of in the wake of, of True Detective, which uh, that show is, uh, had apparently some inspiration from, from him. Uh, and, and it kind of came, came to you know, light as, as people were talking about this and his name started to get mentioned. So when he actually blurbed my work, I, had a, I was a huge Thomas Ligotti fan and still am. And when that came, it was a recognition of, oh, okay, I'm on the right track. And, oh, I'm not a, you know, it it helped with the whole imposter syndrome thing. When you have a writer who you greatly respect, who says something about your work that is very positive. Uh, So, and and another thing similar to that happened when Jack Ketchum uh, blurbed another one of my novellas. I wrote a novella called I Am the New God. Uh, and Jack Ketchum blurbed that one. And so when those kinds of things happen and, and when more short fiction sales are happening and more blurbs are happening, it, it was basically that, that was what gave me a lot of confidence. And up until that point, the, you know, the, the confidence to move on was just a sense deep inside that, uh, that I had stories to tell and, um, and that I had uh, that that I I felt this you know kind of deep in the core of my bones, deep in the marrow of my bones, I felt that I needed to be a writer, and um, and that I you know that I needed to do this, and that was kind of what sustained me for a while. Sheer stubbornness, uh, you know, and and reading a lot also helped because um, if you read enough, you you kind of uh, get this sense of well, I could do better than that, which oftentimes is delusional. Oftentimes you can't do better than that. But that delusion is a healthy one in some respects because it helped launch my writing career in the sense that I would look at, at uh, you know, stuff that was being published and say, well, I could do better than that. And uh, and that led me to feel a little bit more confident about trying my hand at this. And I think uh, the whole idea that I could do better than that, quote unquote, uh, is, uh, you know, in some ways the delusion that launches a million writing careers. But it's a healthy delusion because it it's uh it means that you're engaging with what you're reading and uh looking at its strengths and looking at its weaknesses and that's kind of the first step i think for for most writers is really getting deeply immersed in a text and really appreciating the words and learning to read as a writer reads which is probably a little bit different than how a general reader reads what appeals to you as a writer and a reader about horror fiction well, for me, I, I always say that uh, I didn't choose horror so much as horror chose me. Uh, I was six years old when my grandfather died, and so I, I you know, I, my parents took me to the uh, funeral, and there I am, six years old, and my mom takes me up to my grandfather's casket, and of course, I, I have no way of kind of understanding all this. And I see my grandfather there, and I, I I understand he's dead, but I don't really understand what that means. And, and I, I, you know, uh, didn't know it was taboo, really, to touch the body, or that, it, you know, it's, it's not something that I was really supposed to do. But I, I put my hand out, and I just patted his hand, you know, a couple of times as if to comfort him. 
And I felt how damned cold his body was. And, uh, and at that moment, um, I always, you know, whenever I'm asked this question, I kind of say that I go back to that and say, that's really the moment that I became a horror writer because I was exposed to death at such a young age that the only way I could wrap my head around it was really the imagination, uh, rather than, um, you know, any kind of logic or any kind of, you know, traditional, uh, religious way of looking at it. And so at that point, that and, and other, you know, difficulties that, that happened when I was growing up, uh, gave me, uh, an acknowledgement of the role of tragedy in life and the role of, of death in life. And at the same time, there was this explosion in pop culture of horror entertainment in the late 70s and 80s, um, owing itself largely to Stephen King's heyday in publishing uh, and uh, the rediscovery of a lot of films you know, from the 50s and 60s that were making their way onto television. Uh, and that was how I got my first doses of horror entertainment I grew up in a very conservative household where horror books were not allowed in the house. Horror movies were not something that we were allowed to see, but they couldn't censor the TV as much. So I got a lot of horror entertainment from television. Um, and it, so it was that perfect storm. So I, and what, what continues to interest me in it now, all these years later, is that horror fiction acknowledges tragedy in the world. Uh, it's There is certainly a kind of horror fiction that's more escapist, which is... Uh, an action adventure kind of monster hunting sort of thing. Um, but, and, you know, goodness knows lots of people enjoy that, and I'm not here to to uh, squash their enjoyment or say that it's inappropriate. But for me, that's not really what drives me to the genre. What drives me to the genre is its exploration of tragedy, its ex- exploration of, uh, of a sense of unreality tied to that tragedy, um, the uh, the exploration of trauma, um, that's something that's really important. The exploration of uh, psychological trauma, uh, the aftermath of trauma, um, you know, mental illness, addiction, homelessness. Uh, these are things that you're not going to find in many other genres of fiction. Um, and horror is really equipped to deal with that and give death and tragedy and, and violence the grandeur that they deserve in the imagination uh, and in storytelling. And, uh, and so it's the ideal tool for me. You know, like I said, I, I tried my hand at science fiction at one point in the past and largely out of uh, uh, concern that it, that it would be more marketable <laughs> than horror. Uh, and I just found it didn't work for me. That's not how my brain works. Uh, that's not that's not what what I love, and and so I, I'm kind of a literary ghoul, uh, but uh, but a happy literary ghoul, and uh, and happy to to really provide the service uh, of giving a group of readers who like fiction to acknowledge tragedy uh, and trauma. And, and unreality and, and, you know, to address the needs of that, that set of readers um, and giving them that emotional experience that they're going to find um, fulfilling, not because they love this stuff, but because, you know, because obviously I don't like tragedy. I don't like death. Um, I've seen too much of both to like that. But there's a sense of community that comes 
when you see that someone is acknowledging these things, that it's not swept under the rug, that it's not, you know, you're not in this polite zone where nobody talks about this kind of stuff, that you can break down that wall and address the taboos and, and be very clear about it. And I think there's a sense of relief that a lot of horror readers have when they see that uh, this is a place that you can talk about this stuff, even as terrible as it is. Um, it, you know, it's a place where, where we can all mourn. Uh, and that's one of the things I emphasize to, to people. You know, I have friends who, who know I'm a horror writer and don't really get it. And I think they, they think that uh, um, horror is about reveling in uh, the violence or reveling in the, in the uh, trauma. And that's not my experience with it. My experience is that uh, I write about these things because I want to mourn them. Um, and I want to provide a space where other people can mourn uh, along with me. And we, that's, that's the community that, that we form in horror fiction of, of acknowledging these things. And so you have the irony of this, you know, really uh, stories about alienation and stories about trauma uh, forming a community. Uh, and, you know, so, uh, you know, I think people who have been traumatized or alienated uh, are able to see themselves in my work. And therefore, we have this community that comes out of the alienation, which is, I think, pretty cool. You mentioned earlier your conservative childhood and the fact that horror, horror fiction was not allowed. I'm curious, are you still in touch with your family and what do they think about your writing? Um my my parents are very very old and so uh when i was uh as i was as i've become more more involved in writing uh they've gotten to you know my dad had a, a severe stroke a few years ago uh and so uh he at this point does not always even see and recognize who i am <laughs> so uh and then my mom i've um I have not really talked to her a whole lot about about some of this. Um, I'm I'm in contact with them, but um, I see them about once a year, and and we keep things pretty superficial. And that seems to be that seems to be the best way to handle it for us. It's kind of like uh, we don't talk about my writing. We talk about uh, we talk about my dad because that's the most important thing is just taking care of him. And we try to basically to pr- to preserve the connection that we do have, which is admittedly a bit superficial. Uh, we don't discuss anything that's controversial. And so, and that's kind of the, 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 the cold war treaty that we have. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been uh, interesting because I'm sure that if my mother did read my, my fiction, she would be uh, probably, uh, you know, gnashing her teeth and rending her garments uh, to use a biblical uh, uh, phrase. But, um, but we, you know, it's interesting when I, when in this kind of situation with family, the decision I've made is it's, it's better to have a connection with them that isn't completely, you know, kind of uh, embracing talking about everything uh, and, and just kind of keeping it as it is. And, and uh, and just kind of focusing on that. So, and not not bringing up the controversies, but yeah, it, I mean, we we certainly were at loggerheads <laughs> for for a long time. And uh, but it, there comes a point, and you know, as any listeners out there may know, uh, when you realize that it's you know, if you can achieve some kind of just static 
uh, like I said, a static kind of Cold War piece where we're, you know, we, we decide not, we're not going to talk about the controversial stuff. We're just going to hang out and uh, spend time together as a parent and child, and that tends to work out best. Great. So when you sit down to write, how do you turn off your internal sensor? Oh, um, that's a good question. What I tend to do is remember that there's energy involved in what I'm writing. So even if, uh, if there's stuff that I feel like I'm, I'm you know, crossing a taboo, uh, I try to keep in mind that I can always go back and, and edit it out later. Um, that helps. Uh, it also helps just to know that I have a editor that I can work with. So, you know, for example, with Mr. Suicide, which is uh, very much a, a, a work that's uh, uh, taboo crossing and, and uh, you know, it gets labeled as, uh, as transgressive fiction. Uh, you know, um, with that, I kept in mind that, okay, if I, if, you know, if someone buys this book, then I'm going to have a long editing process. And it's not just going to be me standing behind the book. It's going to be my editor you know, my publisher, uh, et cetera. And, you know, we will go through things line by line if necessary to really um, get to, you know, what we feel like, um, if there's any language that needs to be trimmed out of there. And so that really helps me a lot. Um, every once in a while, I still have issues <laughs> where it's like, I'm writing a novella right now, actually. And there's a scene that I've thought about putting in there, and it's like, you know what? Do I want to go there? Um, you know, is it necessary to go there? And and I guess that's the other thing is I, I typically won't go there unless I feel it is necessary um, to give it, you know, give the experience its full emotional weight. Um, but yeah, it's not not an easy answer, honestly. I mean, yeah. it's it's something where. Um, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of what mood I'm in, too. Sometimes I feel more adventurous than other times. Um, but it's I, I certainly I don't feel any regret about anything that I've put in writing. Uh, as difficult as some of it is for people to read, it's, again, coming from the place of mourning this kind of stuff, not celebrating it. And I think my readers understand that. Given your own experiences, and as you talked about earlier, your writing journey, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who might be listening and are interested in writing their own novels or short stories? I would say, well, there, there's the basic ones, which are read every day, write every day. Um, that was the advice that helped me the most. Uh, read everything that you can. Um, you know, read consistently. And when you start to read consistently, you'll you'll start to notice how people do this. And uh, and then you'll uh, you'll you'll get better at it all, uh, your own work over time. I would also say try to have a sense of objectivity about your work. Um, the way that I think about it is that it's like I'm making soup, and uh, and the um, you know the uh, I'm stirring the soup, and I'm I'm you know putting in different you know spices, and I'm putting in different ingredients, and I have to take a taste of it every once in a while to uh, to see if it's working. And I can lie to myself and tell myself that the you know the soup tastes fine, but if the soup doesn't taste fine, then uh, then then it doesn't do any good, right? So I have to be objective in the same way as I would be if I'm making making something, uh, it, you know, with cooking, or uh, or if I'm you know if I were to look at a car and I were to put up the hood, 
you know, I would have to be objective about, you know, what, what with if my tinkering with the car worked. And with the car, obviously, they'll tell you whether it works or not. Fiction is a little bit, um, is quite a bit more uh, uh, ambiguous about that. But I think being honest with yourself, and I think the other thing, I mean, so much of this is being honest with yourself. Being honest with yourself about the quality of the work um, and being honest with yourself about what you want out of writing. Um, I think this is where probably the, the biggest difficulty that I had early on and the biggest difficulty I see with other people as well is people who just want to be a hobbyist writer, which is com- it's completely cool to do that. But then they get around people who aren't hobbyists and they decide that they have to approach, you know, they, they need to try to, you know, get this other breath wearing over here, like getting an agent or getting a, you know, a major book deal or whatever. Um, or people who want to get that, go after that brass ring and they decide, well, all I need to really do is be a hobbyist, you know, because all my friends are hobbyists. And, uh, and I think writing groups can be helpful, but so often they can put blinders on people where, uh, you decide to go after the same goals that all your buddies are going after. And so I think it's important to be brutally honest with yourself about what you want out of writing and, uh, and really, you know, go towards that ferociously, regardless of what anyone else in your immediate circle wants. When, when you sit down to write, are there ever days that you need to do something to jumpstart the process? Yeah, there are. Um, sometimes if, um, if I am sitting down to write and if it's been a while, for example, I've, you know, I've been doing a lot of promotional stuff after the release of The Sadist Bible. And so I have this novella that I started before all the promotional stuff. And then I, you know, there's deadlines coming up. So I've been working on it some more. And going back to it, it's a little bit hard to get back into it. And so uh, what I've done there is borrow a trick that a writer named David Morrell uh, talks about in a book called The Successful Novelist of kind of writing down a conversation between yourself and, uh, and, and you know, your, your, like two parts of yourself, the, your creative self and the, the part of you that's having difficulty with this. And it sounds completely nuts. Uh, and maybe it is, but it's, it's nuts in a productive way, uh, in the sense that it, uh, it helps you, it has helped me understand what's going on with me that's blocking. Usually writer's block is about me. It's usually not about the work. It's usually for me, writer's block is about a lack of confidence that I have, uh, with something or fear that if I write this, you know, then it's going to come out a certain way or fear that I, or fear that I've written a great, two-thirds of a novella and I'm worried that I'm going to have difficulty driving it home at the end, that my, that my, the final act is not going to live up to the first two acts. Um, usually, or it's sometimes it's because I'm struggling with depression or I'm struggling with anxiety or I didn't sleep well the night before, um, any one of these things. And so, you know, sometimes I'll write down, you know, this, uh, conversation with myself, you know, in, in a little transcript and it's kind of like, you know, okay, Nicole, well, you know, you, you started out with, uh, you know, this scene and you're really not happy with it. Why, why are you not happy with it? Well, it, it could be because this reminds me too much of something that, that interaction that I had with my mom. Oh, really? Let's talk about that. What, what parts of it, you know, remind you of this interaction with your mom? Well, you know, it reminds me of this, but really it's not like that. And, you know, and, and from doing that, and Morell talks about it more in The Successful Novelist, it 
really has helped me kind of find out what's at the core of my writer's block a lot of the times. And that helps me with getting the way out. And sometimes it's, it helps me see that I'm looking at the story in a completely different way and I need to make a completely different approach. So that's part of what I'll do if I'm having trouble. If I'm on a roll, then I don't need to do anything in the morning to get started. I'll just go and, you know, I'll, I'll maybe read over the, the previous few pages from what I wrote the previous day just to kind of get a sense of, to get myself back into the character's mind. Um, but I don't need to do anything, you know, kind of uh, more elaborate than that. What books and authors have inspired your own writing? Oh, uh, well, I mentioned Thomas Ligotti. Uh, I read Thomas Ligotti, um, well, I tried to read him back around 2000, and I really didn't get him, uh, and I kind of put him aside. But then I, I started reading him again. I read a book of his called Teatro Grotesco uh, that came out in paperback in, I think, 2009, and I was blown away. Uh, it's basically horror fiction that is somewhat related to Lovecraft, but it also is influenced by writers like Borges and, uh, and uh, writers uh, like uh, Bruno Schultz and a lot of these really obscure, not, uh, Borges isn't obscure uh, and, and Schultz isn't all that obscure, but uh, there are other writers that, that he is influenced by that are, are pretty, uh, pretty obscure Eastern European writers. Um, and, uh, and so it was really opened my mind to what horror could be uh, that, uh, you know, I didn't really find the whole let's go out and kill a monster kind of horror uh, attractive. You know, I, I, I really didn't find the pulpy stuff as attractive. Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll read a pulpy horror book just because I'm, I find that, you know, to be what I'm, what I'm hungry for it at, at that time. But more I'm interested in stuff that really gets inside the mind and, you know, goes through the layers of the mind. Um, so, yeah, it's so Ligotti was definitely one. Poe is another one. Uh, Poe is someone who I was exposed to relatively early because I grew up in Maryland. And uh, we took... Uh, a field trip one time to the Edgar Allan Poe house in Baltimore. And we were also, as a lot of uh, kids in school uh, are taught Poe, we were taught Poe. We, we read that the telltale heart, I think in middle school. Uh, and, um, and I think with Poe, it's the language is deceptively simple, but the ideas in the fiction about human nature are so ahead of, of his time. I mean, he was writing well before Freud and, but he has this idea of the imp of the perverse, this idea that there's this unacknowledged, but very powerful part of the human psyche that uh, tries to, to sabotage itself basically and does the wrong thing because it's the wrong thing. Uh, and so that's definitely an inspiration. Uh, Jack Ketchum is another one. He, uh, Ketchum uh, has been uh, called by Stephen King the scariest guy in America, uh, and um, and he, uh, you know, Stephen King singled him out in a uh, the National Book Award speech that King gave a few years back. Uh, you know, talked about him a little bit. So, so uh, yeah, Ketchum, I think it's just the uh, the realistic depiction of violence and trauma and its emotional aftermath is really what I, I got from him. And so those are 
and and some you know some science fiction writers too. Philip K. Dick. I mean, the way just the the way he thinks about um, reality and what reality is and what it isn't, and how do we know what reality is and how do we know what reality isn't, uh, has been truly disturbing sometimes. I mean, there there are some Philip K. Dick books that uh, seem to me to be a bit like science fiction horror uh, hybrids. Um, I'm thinking of uh, oh. The name, the name of the one uh, fails me right now. It's uh, the, um, the oh, it's it's uh, oh, it, oh, the the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch. That's what I'm thinking of. Truly frightening book. It, it, completely frightening ending. Uh, you know, very Lovecraftian in a way. Uh, so yeah, uh, and then there's a, another writer who I'll cite is Hubert Selby Jr., which. Um, He's a writer who who a lot of uh, your audience may not know, but he uh, he was uh, really popular in the '60s and '70s, and uh, his book was originally um, originally taken to court, I think, in in England for uh, for a uh, they had a uh, um, indecency trial or or you know something something along those lines against him and. Uh, and so it was very controversial when it first came out. This is a book that he wrote called um, Last Exit to Brooklyn, which, um, you know, again, is just very honest about how things like addiction and how things like trauma and their emotional aftermath work. Um, and so those are a lot of the writers who have inspired me. I'm inspired by writers who kind of approach genres in different ways. Uh, who uh, aren't writing the same old, same old, um, who don't feel compelled to give us a hap- happily ever after, uh, and who are willing to look at the dark side of life because uh, ultimately it's inescapable for all of us. Sure. So you mentioned earlier this novella that you're um, working on. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, just in terms of plot? I can talk a little bit about it. Um, what... I, I can talk a little bit about the character because um, that's probably what I'm most comfortable sure. with right now. Um, character's name uh, is Judy. I, we don't have a, a last name for her, but she's 58 years old. And uh, when she was, oh, let's see, when she was 30, I believe, she killed somebody brutally. Um, has never been suspected of it. Uh, has completely gotten away with it. And uh, has kept her job as a uh, uh, a teacher um, in a uh, in a um, you know at a, a community college. She's a community college uh, professor, and ke- has kept that job. But she's completely alienated, and she's an alcoholic, and uh, she drinks to make the the guilt go away. And she's constantly worried that uh, she's going to be caught. And uh, she's constantly uh, – when she drinks a lot, she has uh, alcohol withdrawal the next day and she starts to shake. She has the the tremors uh, and she starts to get really paranoid and thinks that the FBI has put listening devices out in her hallway. And so what I'm interested in, in kind of doing with this is exploring – you know this the sense of guilt that someone would have after committing a terrible crime and and this person we don't know why this person is really driven to do these kinds of things but we know that from a very early age she has been and uh, and it's an obsession with her uh and and uh she has not committed a murder after that but she's haunted by the murder in the sense not in the sense of regretting it but in the sense of being worried that she's get, going to get caught 
and the emotional aftermath of that for her um, and how she tries to, um, you know, kind of acknowledge the date of the murder on the anniversary of the murder uh, and what happens when that acknowledgement of that goes not according to her plan. Um, so, and I, I, I don't yet have a title that I'm settled on yet, but um, this is for a publisher who is going to be putting together a collection of, of novellas and has invited me to, uh, to, to submit one. So, uh, you know, right now I'm about 11,000 words into something that's probably going to be about 18,000 words. So, um, you know, I, I, I feel like it's good, but it's always, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, a pantser, a fly by the seat of your pants kind of writer. Um, and so I don't outline ahead of time, typically. Um, you know, sometimes I'll do an outline about halfway through a project after I kind of have a sense of where it's going. But, um, and so it, it's been interesting because initially she wasn't a she, she was a he. And, uh, and initially it was um, a different setup entirely. And I had to scrap about 5,000 words and put it aside and say, that's not working. And I had to start over. And, um, and so I did. And uh, that's kind of like the, the downside of being a pantser is uh, that you, uh, you can end up chucking a lot of writing. I, I, you know, I know with uh, Mr. Suicide, I end up chucking at least, you know, 15 or 20,000 words. <laughs> it's like, you know, it just, it, of stuff that just wasn't working. Um, but I feel like the stories are stronger because of that, because it, it, you know, even if it's trial and error, um, that it's, it seems like it, for me, it's a, a more true way of getting to the character because I'm refining it almost like the way a sculptor would, uh, begin to, uh, chisel away at, at the, the stone and, and, you know, go deeper at it and deeper at it and, and kind of, you know, over and over, uh, through repeated chiseling, get the shape that they want. Uh, that's kind of how I look at it. That's how I look at revision too. Um, I don't mind revision at all because again, it's that, um, you know, that whole, uh, you know, delight in getting something right, uh, and being more concerned about that than, you know, concerned about, you know, just getting it done. Um, so yeah, that's a little about that novella. Great. Uh, where can people find you online if they're interested in learning more about you and your fiction? Well, the the one-stop shopping place would be NicoleCushing.com. And when I say shopping place, I'm just using that as an analogy or, or a metaphor. There, there's actually nothing to shop for there. Um, but that's my blog. That's my, uh, you know, you can find my bio. You can find um, all kinds of things there. You can find out how to sign up for my postcard club where I will send you a weird postcard every month. Um, you know, uh, free of charge, uh, just as a way of, of staying in touch with folks. So, um, so that's another thing. If you want to keep, uh, the, uh, the postal service employed, uh, and, uh, avoid the, uh, the email thing, you know, I will send you a postcard, uh, once a month. So NicoleCushing.com is the, the website, uh, and that's N-I-C-O-L-E-C-U-S-H-I-N-G.com. Some people want to try to put an H in Nicole. There's no H in Nicole. Uh, and then I'm also on Facebook and on Twitter at, at Nicole Cushing. Um, and uh, if you really want to be old-fashioned, you can email me, right? Uh, and that's NicoleCushingWriter at gmail.com. 
And uh, I love hearing from folks. So uh, I, I have a, a great group of readers uh, who are, I, in my opinion, I know I'm biased, but they're smarter than the average bear. And uh, and I'm just delighted to hear from them. So uh, give me a call or not a call. Give me an email. Great. <laughs> okay. Again, we've been speaking with Nicole Cushing. Cushing's novel, Mr. Suicide, was awarded the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel. Nicole, thanks for doing this interview. Great to be here. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.